The Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. The moon, yeah. That's Hugo, tickling the ivories. He just saved by bundling home and auto with Progressive. Gonna finally buy a ring for that gal of yours, Hugo? Send her my condolences. Hi-oh! This next one's for you, too. There's a burglar in my heart. Thank you. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations. Welcome to the History of the Cold War podcast, episode 37, The United Nations in the Early Cold War, 1945 to 1950. I'm your host, Jeff Hogue. Throughout the podcast thus far, we have made a number of references to the United Nations, and it will continue to be an important diplomatic institution throughout the rest of the Cold War series. That being said, the UN, like NATO, is a diplomatic institution that is still with us today in the present. The UN receives quite a bit of criticism from both the left and the right. Many argue that the United Nations is a failed institution that has failed to broker lasting peace in the world. The UN is also viewed as a failure in its inability to stand up to despotic regimes and in its capacity to reduce economic inequality. Others point to the fact that the UN structure is deeply unfair. The US, Russia, China, Great Britain, and France, the permanent members of the Security Council, or the P5 run roughshod over the rest of the world community with their veto powers. Only the Security Council can issue binding resolutions or resolutions backed by force, either by sanctions or military action. The General Assembly or the lower house of the UN is, con- in contrast, the vast ma- where the vast majority of member nations sit, has little power beyond making its opinion known through non-binding resolutions meaning nations can pursue policies counter to world political opinion as long as they are a member of the P5 or have the protection of one of these nations. I hope this episode will not only illustrate the UN's role in the early Cold War, but also why the UN is the way it is today and to explain what the original thinking was behind this structure. One of the biggest misunderstandings about the UN is that it is a world government or at the very least the antecedents of one. This, of course, is not the case. The United Nations is a treaty organization like NATO, an organization composed of sovereign nation states. Granted, all all the nations agree with the UN Charter, but the Charter is not binding and historically rarely been enforced. It's important to remember that the UN was not created in a historical vacuum, nor is it the first attempt at a global organization dedicated to peace and human development. League of Nations 1920-1946 preceded the United Nations and greatly influenced the formation of the United Nations. The roots of the League of Nations lay both in the First World War and the optimism of President Woodrow Wilson and the United States. Wilson sought to build on the diplomatic norms which had been established at the Treaty of Westphalia in 1648 and developed throughout the 18th and 19th century through such conferences as the Concert of Europe after the Napoleonic Wars, and the Geneva Convention in 1864, which established international norms for the conduct of war. The founders of the League accepted the sovereign state as the basic entity of the international system, meaning individuals and groups like native tribes or banks weren't recognized. Europe was viewed as the central core of the world's political system. This system was not much different from the world in 1914, 
Yet the purpose of the League of Nations was as a safety mechanism established in order to prevent another world war. It was felt that if Europe had established norms of geopolitics, they wouldn't accidentally stumble into another world war. The League was headquartered in neutral Switzerland in Geneva. The League, like the later UN, had two houses or bodies, the Assembly and the Council. The Assembly was composed of member states primarily from those of Europe, Latin America, and those nations not under colonial rule, which left out most of the world. The Council was composed of the four victorious allies, Great Britain, France, Italy, Japan, and four to five rotating members elected on a regional basis typically. Germany and the Soviet Union also served briefly as permanent members of the Council during the lifetime of the League. Two large outliers were the Soviet Union, who joined later, and the United States, which never joined despite spearheading the organization. Wilson had failed to garner political support at home and worked with the Republicans, who refused to ratify the treaty in the Senate. In the 1920 presidential election, the Democrats tried to revive the prospects of American participation in the League. FDR, the vice presidential candidate, declared in San Francisco that membership in the League was the dominant issue of the election. Ironically, 25 years later, the U.N. Charter would be signed in San Francisco. Over half of FDR's speeches that year were in support of the League. Roosevelt dropped Wilson's soaring rhetoric and argued that the League was a practical necessity. In the end, the Republican campaign of a return to normalcy defeated the Democrats in a landslide and Warren Harding became president and the U.S. stayed out of the League. Beyond the non-participation of the United States and Soviet Union, about half of the world's population had no representation in the League, as their nations were in imperial servitude as European empires still ruled much of the world. Despite the failure of the League in the 1930s, it should be recalled that the League was greeted with much excitement and enthusiasm in the 1920s. Nothing like this had really been tried before, and many people and nations around the world invested high hopes in what the League could achieve. It was also a place where small states like Belgium or Czechoslovakia could now stand an equal footing as the great powers like Great Britain and France, in theory at least. This was a body dedicated to achieving peaceful outcomes, to conflicts between states and peaceful cooperation. The League championed international cooperation on many fronts. There was a committee on the prohibition of the opium trade, a committee on ending white slavery or what we today call prostitution, there was an agreement on civil aviation, postal codes, telegraph unions, and maritime law. Many of these topics did not fall under the purview of the new international organization, but they were associated with the League. There were also a series of treaties between states limiting arms in the early 1920s. Most famous of these was the Washington Naval Treaty of 1922 and the Pact of Paris in 1928, which renounced war as a means of settling international disputes. Many of these treaties came to, came to include either the U.S. or the Soviet Union, despite their traditional reservations about international obligations. The League also had some political successes as well. It brokered a territorial settlement between Finland and Sweden over the Enlands Islands in 1920 and supervised the free city of Danzig through a high commission to govern the city. The League had also championed the rights of ethnic minorities in Eastern and Central Europe. The League also attempted to practice oversight of the mandated territories which had been taken from the Ottoman and German empires after the First World War and placed under Allied control for safekeeping. Though not thrilled, Great Britain complied somewhat with the League oversight for its holdings in the Middle East. The French, in contrast, cooperated somewhat as well, but, but hated League oversight of Syria and Lebanon. Japan outright refused to report on how they were managing the central Pacific islands they had captured from the Germans. 
Looking at the situation in 1930 versus our perspective in the early 21st century, it would appear that the League had made a lot of progress, making a safer, more peaceful world. Nevertheless, the League suffered from key structural weaknesses and couldn't withstand the economic winds of the Great Depression and the ethnic and ideological monsters that would be let loose upon the world. One of the weaknesses of the League in retrospect was the lack of international financial bodies like the IMF and World Bank. The League had no ability to soften the blow of the Great Depression and failed to facilitate conversation amongst the member states who addressed the Depression. More importantly, the United States, the world's primary creditor, largest economy, and source of the Depression, wasn't a member of the League and outside of the international system. Before the war, Great Britain and its, and its gold standard had acted as the lender of last resorts in concert normally with other European powers to address recessions and economic panics. Nevertheless, by 1919, she had a huge war debt, as did the rest of Europe's major economies, which precluded them from riding to the rescue, so to speak. The Depression hit most of the world hard. Many countries brutally cut their budgets, cutting benefits. Others pursued disastrous inflationary policies that wiped out the wealth of millions of people. This led companies to lay off people, which in turn led to less consumer, consumer spending and the closure of more factories and businesses. With millions of workers out of work, nations retreated behind tariffs and restricted international trade in an effort to save what jobs they could. This contributed to the growth of radical politics on the left with communism and anarchism and on the right with radical ethno-nationalism and fascism in many countries. By the early 1930s, Italy and Japan were no longer content to be members of the world community but wished to expand their imperial holdings. Both believed that the peace of 1919 had not favored them politically and economically and thus sought to remake the international system. Germany, with the ascent of Hitler in 1933, took a similar position and became another rogue nation, if you will. Japan in 1931 was the first to challenge the international order with the invasion of Manchuria. The League failed to respond. Great Britain and France, the principal powers of the League, were consumed with domestic issues. Great Britain was paralyzed with the Depression and the fall of the recent Labour government and faced heated domestic and unrest at home and throughout the empire, even facing a mutiny in the, in the Navy for the first time since 1797. France was concerned about Germany and didn't want Britain engaged in a war in the Far East when France needed the British focused on Europe. Germany and Italy watched as Japan shattered League principles, and when the League did pu publish a report criticizing Japan's actions in 1933, Japan walked out of the League. Sensing his chance to expand his empire, Mussolini invaded one of the last free African states, Ethiopia, a fellow League of, Me of Nations member. Italy was, was stretched logistically in this effort to win the war in Ethiopia, and in many ways the Italian military was an empty suit of armor. Impressive on the parade ground, but technologically dated, disorganized, and lacking supplies. British and French military action could have swiftly brought Italy's dreams of empire to an end and strengthened the position of the League. But Britain and France failed to act yet again. Britain was invested in imperial concerns in Palestine and India, and a strong pacifist movement also gripped the nation, as they did not wish to repeat the horrors of the First World War. France, as in 1931, was focused on the resurgent Germany. Germany had joined the League in 1926, but Hitler left the League after coming to power in 1933. The disarmament treaties built up so painstakingly over the 1920s were openly and secretly broken, violated, or abandoned. Germany demanded the right to expand its army beyond the 100,000 men stipulated by the Treaty of Versailles. They also demanded the right to build an air force, which had been outlawed in the Versailles Treaty, 
and expand their navy beyond the limits of the Versailles Treaty. Meanwhile, Japan and the Pacific had withdrawn from the Washington Naval Treaty in 1936. To make matters worse, that same year, the U.S., Great Britain, and France signed the Second London Naval Treaty, further limiting their arms, even though Japan and Italy refused to participate in negotiations and were building up their navies. Back in Germany that March, Hitler openly violated the Treaty of Versailles by reoccupying the Rhineland, an area the treaty had declared a demilitarized zone. That summer, Britain's prime minister had decided that the League of Nations was a failure and decided to pursue direct negotiations with the Germans and Italians, which dealt a significant blow to the reputation and authority of the League. The Soviet Union offset the departure of, Ger of Germany by joining the League, hoping to find allies to stem the tide of fascism, but quickly discovered that the League was incapable of stemming the tide of fascism, and Stalin, like Chamberlain, sought to make his own peace with Hitler. In the end, the Soviet Union became the only member voted out of the League in 1940 for its invasion of Finland. The United States also weakened the League. It refused to renegotiate its war loans to the Allies in the 1920s, and this debt helped to fuel the depression and economic hardship in the 1930s, which helped the growth of radical politics in Europe. The U.S. also continued to trade with Italy and Japan in the 1930s, despite their aggression in Ethiopia and China. Britain had wanted to blockade Italy in the wake of the invasion of Ethiopia as Italy was dependent on oil imports, but Italy could always buy oil from the United States, making sanctions ineffective. Moreover, U.S. insistence on neutrality in the 1930s encouraged Italy, Germany, and Japan's policies of aggression and weakened the British and French resolve to stand up to them. Despite Roosevelt's election to the office in 1932, the United States remained deeply isolationist. Privately, FDR was still committed to the idea of the League. He had made 13 visits to Europe during his life and lived there for three years and had served as an assistant secretary of the Navy for Wilson. He was also aware America was a part of the wider world and packed the State Department with, with internationalists. Nevertheless, publicly he shied away from the League as the vast majority of Americans were isolationist. Many other states like Finland, Chile, or New Zealand were consistent in arguing against appeasement and for standing up to Hitler or Mussolini in the 1930s, but without armies or navies to help contain these forces, their words were of little value. Therefore, the burden fell to Britain and France, the only great powers left in the League of Nations. This left Britain and France, so to speak, as the stewards of the international system. France and Britain, though, couldn't agree on how to preserve this order. France wanted to see the League armed in more of a defensive pact designed to contain Germany. In this aim, France was joined by Czechoslovakia, Poland, Yugoslavia, and the Soviet Union. London saw the League as a peacemaking organization built to avoid another war, not a defensive pact. Moreover, Great Britain felt they had enough problems with their empire in Palestine, Egypt, and India not to stoke the fires of another war in Europe over territory and issues that were of little concern to Britain. Both nations also lacked the military power to maintain the international system and confront the Axis powers. France and Great Britain had reduced their spending on defense year after year and had signed treaties limiting their armaments. France had also neglected spending on R&D in the interwar years and was technologically far behind Germany in aircraft manufacturing and tactics. Germany and Japan had, in contrast, been spending heavily on defense since the early 1930s. So France and Britain found themselves in 1938 militarily at a disadvantage in comparison to the Axis powers. In the summer of 1937, Japan invaded China proper with terrifying brutality, most notably the rape of Nanking. The following spring, Hitler conquered Austria. Then came the Munich crisis in the fall of 1938. 
Hitler demanded Czechoslovakia surrender the German-speaking Sudetenland. Britain and France pressured Czechoslovakia to surrender these lands to Germany. In exchange, Hitler promised that he had no further territorial demands in Europe. Six months later, Hitler reneged on his promise and invaded the rest of Czechoslovakia, humiliating Britain and France. In September of 1939, Hitler tried yet again to expand his empire, this time at the expense of Poland, but Britain and France had finally had enough and declared war to, at the, to the surprise of Hitler when Germany invaded Poland that September, beginning the Second World War. During the war, the League went into receivership and was administered by a skeleton staff until it was officially dissolved in 1946. The United Nations, as with the League, was primarily an American idea, and its structure closely followed the plans prepared by American diplomats. Even before the United States had entered the war, FDR had tasked Secretary of State Cordell to set up a team to plan the post-war order. Roosevelt himself advocated a plan he called the Four Horsemen. In FDR's view, these four powers of Great Britain, the United States, the Soviet Union, and China would be the world policemen and would run out of an international organization. Churchill was more interested in longevity and the survival of the British Empire and saw the United Nations as a threat to the British Empire, but moved ahead with the negotiations around the organization because they needed American aid. Stalin was more concerned with the Soviet Union's future security in Eastern Europe, so Roosevelt's aspirations around the UN didn't threaten the Soviet Union's interests, and opposition to it might threaten cooperation on Soviet interests in Eastern Europe, so Stalin went ahead with the plan as well. The United Nations was established in a pair of conferences at Dumberton Oaks from late July to early October 1944 and at San Francisco from late April to late June 1945. The Dumberton Oaks Conference was limited to only Great Britain, the United States, China, and the Soviet Union. Dumberton Oaks was a secluded mansion above Georgetown in northwest Washington. An enormous horseshoe-shaped table was used for the conference. The United States catered to all the needs of their guests. The British were given tickets to the remaining home games of the Washington Senators. A painting of a Polish statesman was removed from the mansion so not to offend the Soviet delegation. They also arranged for the delegates to spend a weekend in New York City, taking them to the gentleman's club Billy Rose's Diamond Horseshoe, not to be confused with the movie that came out that year, and a backstage show at the Rockettes, after a movie and a stage show at Radio City Music Hall. The British and Chinese were delighted with the trip, but the Soviets refused to attend. When the news of the weekend leaked to the press, it caused a stir, but the State Department denied it happened. The Americans were led by the Undersecretary of State, Edward Sinis, future Secretary of State. He was 43, the Lend-Lease Administrator. He was known in Washington as an efficient administrator with a flair for public relations. Gromyko, 35, led the Soviet delegation. He was not well known, although he had been stationed in Washington for five years. He was rarely seen at diplomatic parties and was rarely in a good mood. Many described him as the, quote, oldest young man in Washington, close quote. Cordigan, the British delegate, was a far more experienced diplomat. He had represented Britain at the League of Nations. He was admired, calm, and intelligent, and had a quick, a quick wit. China, the last delegation, had raised some questions. However, Roosevelt insisted that China be included as the fourth policeman because he wanted to replace Japan in the Pacific. To the British and the Soviets, the idea of China becoming a world power seemed ridiculous. The British pushed for France to become one of the policemen as well. The Americans privately thought that the French were done as a world power, and Roosevelt hated De Gaulle, but he consented for Britain's support for China. The Americans had also raised the possibility of Brazil as a permanent member of the Security Council, 
but Britain and the Soviet Union objected, and the matter was dropped. The Soviets, nevertheless, since they had yet to declare war on Japan, refused to be seated with the Chinese. This resulted in the conference being split into two phases. The first phase, which included the Soviet Union, and the second, which included China. The British, uh, the U.S., and the Soviets more or less ironed out all the aspects, and Britain and the U.S. presented the final details uh, to China, and the Chinese signed off. China, having little power, was in no real position to argue about the details. Stennis and the rest of the delegates had agreed to keep the proceedings private, sharing very little with the press. Nevertheless, James Reston from the New York Times had a friend, Chen Yi, on the Chinese delegation who shared copies of all the position papers tabled by the delegates. This news leak infuriated the delegation chiefs. At the conference, the Soviets, Americans, and British agreed on a broad outline for the UN. They agreed to the Security Council with its five permanent members, which would have veto power, unlike the League, which required unanimous votes to impose sanctions. Moreover, the UN Security Council would have the power to use military force to enforce uh, Security Council resolutions. They also agreed on the formation of a General Assembly comprising all the members to debate issues and approve budgets, but which would have no enforcement power, a Secretariat of International Civil Servants, and an International Court of Justice. Nevertheless, there was some disagreement over the name. Roosevelt had wanted the United Nations, but Britain and the Soviet Union thought the name was too grandiose. Nevertheless, the Americans were insistent, and the Soviets and British decided to accept the name to placate the Americans. The other issue of contention at the conference was that the Soviet Union proposed that all 16 Soviet republics should have a seat in the General Assembly. The Soviets felt they needed to have these votes since Britain, with its Commonwealth and the United States via South America, would outvote the Soviet Union in the General Assembly. The Soviets saw the Latin American nations as semi-colonies of the United States. The Americans thought the idea was ludicrous and that if that was the case, the U.S. should have 48 votes, uh, one for each state. Nevertheless, it was decided to table the issue until the Yalta Conference. At Yalta, Molotov proposed the Soviets would be willing to accept four additional votes at the UN instead of its original request for 16. In response, Roosevelt offered three for the Soviet Union and three votes for the United States. The compromise was accepted, but the U.S. State Department thought the idea was nonsensical, and the U.S. never took its two other seats at the UN. Roosevelt, Churchill, and Stalin all agreed that the next conference for the UN should be held in San Francisco. Unlike in 1919, in 1945, the Democrats were prepared to wage a political and public relations campaign to get the United Nations Charter ratified by Congress. For the first time in history, the State Department prepared a PR blitz to convince the American people to support the creation of the UN. In September 1944, they invited 40 pro-UN groups to a meeting in New York to strategize. The UN project had great popular support from the far left to the center right. Socialist leader Norman Thomas uh, supported it, as did the segregationist wing of the Democratic Party. New York Governor Thomas Dewey, who had been the Republican presidential candidate in 1944 and would be again in 1948, also endorsed the UN. Nevertheless, the far right was vehemently opposed, saying that it was a British-Jewish conspiracy at world government. In the end, the Senate ratified the UN Charter 89-2, with the vast majority of Republicans voting for it, and the U.S. became the third nation to ratify the charter after Nicaragua and El Salvador. Only the senators of Minnesota and North Dakota voted against it, claiming that the U.N. was an unlawful superstate. 
However, before the UN conference could even get off the ground, it suffered a blow. Molotov announced that he would not lead the Soviet delegation. The Americans felt the loss of Molotov at the negotiations would weaken the credibility of the organization. Fate soon intervened, though, as FDR had died that April, and Stalin called on the American ambassador to ask what gesture Stalin could make to the memory of FDR to assure the American people of his desired cooperation with the U.S., and the ambassador jumped on the moment and asked Stalin to send Molotov, which he promptly did, against Molotov's objections. The U.S. State Department was determined that the conference in San Francisco go off without a hitch. They wanted a well-planned, choreographed event. Nothing was left to chance. Organizers spent months anticipating all the possible moves and shifts that might occur among the delegates, the press, and the public, wargaming out every possible scenario. The United States designed all the public presentations at the conference. Moreover, American artists created all the credentials, buttons, lapel pens, flags, badges, and even the insignia of the U.N., in which all the land masses of the world were spun around a concentric circle with the United States in the center. This first logo deliberately cut out Argentina as it was excluded from joining at the time. The color blue was also adopted. Later, when the UN was formally established, the map was tilted so that the international dateline became the centerpiece, symbolizing the east-west world, and the entire southern hemisphere was now included. If you want to see the difference between the two logos, check out the website. To help celebrate the occasion, the U.S. Post Office issued one million com commemorative five-cent blue stamps. Washington, as the host, agreed to pay all the costs of the conference except the personal expenses of the delegates. Initially, some $1.4 million was allocated by the State Department, but the event ended up costing $2 million by the closing of the proceedings. The San Francisco Opera House was transformed to host the event at the cost of $5 million. The U.S. also built a library for the event for the different delegations to consult, consisting of daily newspapers, microfilm of the New York Times back to 1916, and all the records of the League of Nations, including 3,000 volumes contributed by the Library of Congress, the University of California, Stanford, Mills College, the Hoover War Library, and the San Francisco Public Library. The administration scrutinized every detail, from the grand to the minute ranging from who should exercise the real authority in meetings, the design of security badges, and distribution of tickets. Everything that could conceivably affect the outcome of the conference was imagined, and the conference was designed to mitigate the chance of calamity and or embarrassment. The U.S. government handled much of the logistical issues and travel costs with getting delegates to San Francisco for the event. For example, the United States provided free air travel to San Francisco to both the Philippines and China via the U.S. military. For those coming to San Francisco from Europe, arriving in the East Coast, the government dedicated 18 train coaches to bring some 2,300 delegates to the conference. The train trips were not direct, but a showcase of American power and prosperity designed to impress their guests with the economic strength and prosperity of the United States. Stops were made in Chicago, Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, and San Diego before they arrived in San Francisco. Delegates saw mile after mile of farms, seemingly endless fields punctuated by mighty industrial cities and prospering towns. Many of the delegates coming from war-torn Europe were astonished at the quantity and quality of food. The delegates, the press, and staffers flooded into San Francisco between April the 22nd and the 25th. San Francisco, a city of 600,000 in 1945, increased to 800,000 in a few days. The population of participants fluctuated throughout the conference, but in all, some 5,000 people participated. Beyond the delegates, there were some 2,600 members of the press, 
one of these the young journalist John F. Kennedy. 300 security officers, 120 interpreters, translating five languages, English, French, Spanish, Russian, and Chinese. 37 foreign ministers and five prime ministers. Unknown numbers of San Franciscans also attended the sessions. 46 nations began the proceedings. By the end of the conference, another four nations would be added. Lobbyists also showed up at the event, about 1,500 in all, often operating under the guise of being a reporter or correspondent for their special interest or crusade, most of whom were Americans as it was easier for them to travel to the event. They played various roles at the conference. Some sought to alter the outcome of the debates. Others merely tried to get their ideas before the delegates. A delegation of Iroquois Native Americans, for example, appeared at one point to protest. Forty-two consultants uh, were recognized by the U.S. government. They ranged from the Congress of International Organizations to the think tank of the Council of Foreign Relations, the American Jews Committee, the American Bar Association, the League of Women Voters, the Catholic Welfare Conference, the NAACP, the American Legion, and many more. The U.S. as the hosts of the event uh, were not sure what to even do with all these people. But as the conference evolved, the lobbyists pressured the U.S. delegation into having meetings with them, and often in the morning before the regular sessions, they would meet with the various groups. Nevertheless, these lobbyists had an influence over the drafting of the U.N. Charter and influenced the Charter in terms of education and human rights. Many were worried that the U.S. was opening a Pandora's box by inviting these lobbyists, but Sinis believed that by inviting them, they would help to build the broad-based popular support the U.S. would need to ratify the Charter. Stennis would lead the American delegation to San Francisco with four members of Congress, including Republicans, bringing Senator Vandenberg, the one-time isolationist, as well as 17 advisors and various U.S. agencies. Truman and the Democrats wanted to avoid the mistakes of 1919 and wanted to include the Republicans in the process so that when it came time to ratify the charter, they would have enough votes. They also invited John Foster Dulles, the leading Republican diplomat and the future Secretary of State to President Eisenhower. A fleet of vehicles that were supplied by the Army and Navy with some 215 sedans, 25 Jeeps, 50 buses, and 48 limos, and some 800 taxis to shuttle delegates between events, meeting sites, and their hotels. Elaborate spreads of food were made available to the delegations, and a basement cafeteria served a dollar lunch buffet from morning until night. Some delegates did, though, complain about their hotels or the lack of beef and pork as a result of rationing. Nevertheless, the U.S. attempted to compensate for these shortcomings with extra alcohol, notably scotch, champagne, and bourbon, along with cigarettes, hard-to-find commodities in the rest of the world as a result of the war. Many San Franciscans volunteered to help with the conference, including the Boy Scouts. Citizens of the city placed world peace stickers on their their shop windows and their car windshields. Volunteers helped to run errands, buying the delegates lunch, or getting their suits dry-cleaned. A special theater played movies for U.N. delegates. Some citizens loaned out rooms to the odd delegate or reporter. In the rush to get everything ready, some delegations were overlooked. The State Department forgot to book hotels for the small Norwegian delegation and had to scatter them between the different hotels. Many other small delegations felt ignored, isolated, and neglected. Security at the event was considerable. The war in the Pacific was still raging, and sentries were placed on roofs, and anti-aircraft guns were stationed on high buildings to ward off the danger of possible balloon attacks by the Japanese. During the war, Japan had experimented with using high-altitude balloons in the jet stream to deliver attacks on the United States. 
On the opening day of the conference, thousands of people thronged the streets in a light rain watching the delegations arrive. Escorts guided the 3,000 delegates and onlookers and media into the gathering hall. The nominal authority in San Francisco was the steering committee, composed of 46 delegates designed to handle all the major policy issues. But as the host, the United States retained power to make recommended day-to-day organizational decisions. Indeed, the first day of the conference, the steering committee quickly adopted the U.S. recommendations for moving forward. Elger Hiss was appointed the first acting Secretary General of the United Nations on the recommendation of FDR and the Secretary of State, Stannis. Unknown at the time, but if you will remember from episode 16, Hess was a Soviet spy. As the sponsors of the conference, the Big Five, the U.S., Britain, France, China, and the Soviet Union had the responsibility of keeping everything on track. Therefore, at the conference, they met nightly at the penthouse suite of the Fairmont Hotel of the residence of the American Secretary Stannis to review strategy, assess amendments, and consider requests from smaller states and resolve internal disputes. Despite all the American preparations, though, things got off to a rough start. The Soviets, led by Molotov, objected to a motion naming Stennis president of the conference. Instead, Molotov motioned for a rotating co-presidency and openly hinted that if he didn't get his way, he would walk out of the proceedings. Molotov's motion violated diplomatic tradition that the host nation of an international conference serve as the presiding officer. That night, Stennis called Truman and told him what had happened. Truman told Stennis to stick to his guns and to tell Molotov to go to hell. The next day, Anthony Eden and the British offered a compromise in which the Big Five would serve as rotating heads of the planning committees and that Stennis would preside over all private gatherings as well as the steering and executive committees. Realizing that he was outnumbered and his bluff called, Molotov backed down and accepted the deal. Making the situation even testier, Molotov insulted the Mexican ambassador to his face that he and the rest of the Latin American nations were slaves of the Americans. The Soviets were not done with their demands either. They didn't want Belarus and Ukraine to become independent members of the United Nations with their own voting rights. The United States, per their agreement at Yalta, agreed to endorse their membership in the UN. The Republicans and Senator Vandenberg were opposed to this and wanted to wait until after the conference, but the Soviets were insistent and Stannis feared they would walk out if they, they didn't seat the Soviet republics. The Latin American delegation was incensed at this move, especially after Molotov's insult, and demanded that if Ukraine and Belarus were made members of the UN, Argentina should be allowed to become a member as well. Truman didn't want to allow Argentina to become a member. They had remained throughout the war a pro-Nazi state, but agreed to Argentina's admission in exchange for the admission of Ukraine and Belarus. The approval of Ukraine and Belarus was approved by the committee, but the Soviet Union bitterly protested the admission of Argentina, and most Americans and the American press backed Molotov and his denunciation of Argentina, and they criticized the administration for making a dirty deal and succumbing to the pressure of the Latin American states. Molotov also shocked the committee by having the Czech representative call for the admission of Poland to the assembly. At this point, the U.S. and Great Britain had still not recognized the Moscow-backed Polish government. In response, Senator Vandenberg passed a note to Stennis, who rose and declared that the U.S. had honored its pledge at Yalta, but would not recognize the Soviet-backed Polish government until the Soviets honored their Yalta agreement for a representative Polish government. The British quickly backed the American position, 
and Belgium offered the Soviets an out, uh, promising that, uh, proposing they pass a resolution expressing the hope that a new Polish government might be organized in time to attend the conference. It should be noted that for the rest of the Cold War, from 1945 until the breakup of the Soviet Union in 1991, the Soviet Union held three votes in the General Assembly, with Ukraine and Belarus casting their votes as separate nations, even though they both recognized Moscow as their capital and the Soviet Union as their country. The rest of the conference went smoothly, though. Despite Molotov's threats in retrospect, walking out of the UN would have cost the Soviet Union a lot. For one, it would have cost the Soviet Union's international reputation in walking out. Second, the Soviet Union held one of the highest positions in the body with its veto, which enhances the diplomatic influence of the Soviet Union. Finally, the Soviet Union had won even more popularity and goodwill, especially with the American people, for opposing the membership of Argentina. In San Francisco, in the aftermath of the Second World War, it was decided that the League had failed because it was too democratic and too liberal. It was argued that small nations like Denmark or New Zealand had too much power and gummed up the wheels of diplomacy with their own proposals and objections, standing in the way of progress and agreements between the great powers. The democratic nature of the League had made it impossible for the League to stand up to aggression in the 1930s. Small nations, again, like Belgium and Norway, were militarily weak nations and consumers of security. The world wars had clearly demonstrated that these small nations could not provide for their defense against the larger aggressive neighbors. The great powers had been forced to become providers of international security. Only they had the capacity to defeat Germany, Italy, and Japan. The other big lesson Western planners took from the failure of the League was the need for global financial institutions. They strongly believed, and correctly so, that the economic conditions of the 1930s had led to the rise of radical politics and the Second World War. The Soviets, however, were philosophically opposed to the creation of global financial institutions and the belief that the roots of the World War itself was rooted in the contradictions of capitalism, which created the Great Depression in the first place. Therefore, they did not participate. The British and Americans nevertheless pushed ahead with the creation of these institutions, the IMF and the World Bank, which we'll be examining in our next episode. It was also decided that the United States and the Soviet Union had to be members of any new organization. In the 1920s and 1930s, though playing constructive roles at times, they were more often than not spoilers. The British were especially insistent on this point. They didn't want to bear the burden of a new international order by themselves, further weakened as a result of the war and lacking the assistance of France, who had ceased to be a great power. Not much thought was given to culture, ideology, or human rights. Those all came in a rush with the end of the war in 1945. As the negotiations sought to put a loftier and more prosaic language over the security frame of the United Nations. Like the League, the UN would have two main bodies, the Security Council and the General Assembly. The Security Council would be composed of, five, of the five victorious ally states, each of whom would have a veto power over any security issue and be a permanent member of the Council. Ten additional rotating non-permanent states were added as well, although these states had no veto rights. It was acknowledged that this system would be less democratic and against universalist principles, but it was believed that it would provide much greater stability and security to the international system. Moreover, unlike in 1918, the victorious allies anticipated the possibility of renewed aggression by Germany and Japan in the 1950s or 1960s. True, the Allies had, dem had democratization plans for Germany and Japan, but after the failure of the League and the Treaty of Versailles, they knew that they had to be more careful this time and stiffen the security provisions of the UN Charter. 
The Security Council, in stark contrast to the General Assembly, can meet on very short notice, even at night or over the weekends, in an emergency session. Despite all the language of the Charter requiring compliance with the UN Security Council resolutions, if one of the P5 wished to defy the UN and go it alone, there was little that could be done. Under the auspices of the United Nations, nevertheless, if lesser states broke the rules, they might be punished if the P5 agreed to take such an action. The General Assembly would be more democratic, representing the government of all UN member states. It would be operate various committees and agencies whose membership rotated and could be regionally representative. The General Assembly would meet annually, which reduced its capacity and flexibility, making the opening of the annual session of the General Assembly much more ideological and ceremonial. The General Assembly, in contrast to the Security Council, lacks the power and authority in areas of economic and social matters. The General Assembly has tried in the past to correct this imbalance. From time to time, they wrote resolutions calling on the Security Council and the P5 to take action with little success. In 1947, they set up an internal committee to respond to emergencies, especially when the Security Council was deadlocked, but the committee still lacked the enforcement power of the Security Council and slowly faded away. Therefore, the United Nations, and thus the New World Order, they hoped would rest on three pillars. International security, as provided by the UN Security Council through cooperative diplomacy and arbitration settlement, backed by military force to deter aggression, or if that failed, to defeat aggression through the use of military force. The second pillar was the belief that military security without economic improvement and stability would be short-lived and futile, necessitating the need to create global financial institutions. The third pillar was the belief that the system would collapse without political and cultural understanding between peoples. The UN Charter that came out of San Francisco was remarkably balanced in hindsight. The Americans had stressed the need for political and cultural understanding. The Soviets had stressed the need for security, and the British had focused on the need for economic prosperity and stability after the war. This gave the UN more powers than the League, yet safeguarded the interests of the great powers and protected the rights of states and their sovereignty. The UN at the outset was also more successful than the League as it had the participation of all the great powers, including the United States and the Soviet Union. After the end of the UN conference in San Francisco, London hosted the UN for the next few weeks of 1946. Nevertheless, everyone knew London was a temporary home to the UN. Great Britain argued that the UN should be moved back to Geneva, the home of the League. This proposal fell for two reasons, though. For one, Geneva was considered by many as bad luck, and they didn't want to associate the UN with the League, stressing a clean break with the past. Second, because of the Security Council's ability to use force, Switzerland objected to any international body operating from its territory which could declare war, as they felt it would violate their tradition of neutrality. The Soviets advocated that the UN be located in the United States, which was located between Asia and Europe, and the committee agreed to place the UN in the United States along the eastern seaboard. A secretary general was also chosen to lead the UN. Tigre Lai, a 49-year-old foreign minister of Norway, was unanimously elected to the role. The Americans had preferred the Canadian ambassador Lester Pearson, but the Soviets felt the Canadians were too close to the United States. The British and Latin Americans had wanted Paul Henry Spock, the Belgium ambassador, but the Soviets felt he was too Western European. In these days, before the arrival of the Asian and African states, the Scandinavian states were seen as a neutral neutral faction. It's important to remember that this was in 1946, before the creation of NATO in 1949. 
The Soviets were impressed with Norway's resistance to the Nazis during the war and endorsed Lai, and the British and Americans accepted the compromise. Lai was a former labor lawyer who had lived in London for most of the war as the foreign minister of Norway, a part of the exiled Norwegian government. He was best known for ordering the Norwegian merchant fleet to flee to Britain in 1940 and continued to help the British throughout the war. Some had hoped that the Secretary General would become a bold figure in the world who symbolized the values of the United Nations and wielded the moral authority and standing to call rogue nations to account and call nations to action akin to the Pope and medieval Catholic Europe. Lai, however, refused to view himself in that light. He believed his position generated a moral power but not a physical power, and in this world, moral power isn't enough. He believed that he was a force for peace but a realistic one without illusions. Initially, the UN was housed in the gymnasium of the Bronx Hunter College for Women. Some had advocated for a return to San Francisco, but the British and Soviets objected that this was too far away. Others advocated Philadelphia, but Lai favored New York, and he appealed to the mayor of New York and Robert Moses, New York's urban planner and the most powerful man in the city. Moses suggested Turtle Bay overlooking the East River. John D. Rockefeller donated $8.5 million dollars to the project to renovate the area, bulldozing the slums in the area. The General Assembly accepted the offer in a 46-7 vote, and construction was completed in 1952, and it has remained the home of the UN since that time. If you're ever in the New York area, I recommend you go to, on the tour of the building and check it out. The UN also helped to advance human rights early in the Cold War with the Declaration of Human Rights. As hard as it might be to believe, with the atrocities of ISIS practicing slavery and grotesque public executions or ethnic cleansing uh, in Rwanda or the former Yugoslavia in the 1990s would surely make you question this claim. Nevertheless, if we compare the crimes against humanity in the late 20th century and early 21st century to those committed by Germany and Japan in the 1930s and 40s, they pale in comparison. Granted, the campaign for human rights and tolerance long preceded the Holocaust and was rooted in Christian and Buddhist traditions. Nevertheless, in political terms, these were relatively modern ideas that emerged towards the end of the 18th century. The American and French revolutions, the abolition of the slave trade, and the American emancipation. The Geneva Convention regulating the conduct of war were events that all arguably improved the rights and freedoms of peoples. In 1918, Woodrow Wilson's 14 points and national self-determination, though scoffed at by the French and British, were ideas that galvanized millions of people and weakened the ideological basis of empire. Wilson and the League had also recognized the rights of smaller nations in the international system. The UN Charter of Human Rights was a great step forward in that tradition. Though virtually forgotten, the Declaration of Human Rights enjoyed enormous international attention. Eleanor Roosevelt, FDR's widow, served as the chair of the commission, which produced the charter. Thousands of intellectuals were invited to participate, including H.G. Wells. The committee was swamped with appeals from all over the world for help against local human rights abuses. W.D. Du Bois appealed to the U.N. to end discrimination against African Americans in the United States, which the Soviet Union exploited for propaganda uh, despite Stalin's persecution of non-Russian peoples in the Soviet Empire. The Declaration of Human Rights begins with 11 articles akin to the U.S. Bill of Rights and the French Declaration of the Rights of Man proclaiming the equality of all humans and the rights of everyone to life, liberty, and personal security, the right to marry, the right to own property, the right to free movement, the right to peacefully assemble, freedom of expression, participation in government through periodic elections. 
the right to Social Security, free elementary education, to leisure, to employment, to equal pay for equal work, to join a trade union, to health care, and an adequate standard of living. Article 25 was by far the most progressive. The right to a decent standard of living was to include, quote, food, clothing, housing, and medical care, and necessary social services, and the right to security in the event of unemployment, sickness, disability, widowhood, old age, or lack of livelihood, close quote. The Declaration was hung in classrooms and libraries across the United States and much of the world. Its passage was greeted with much fanfare and celebration around the world in 1948. Nevertheless, despite the lofty rhetoric and the passage of the document, the UN still fell short of its aspirations. Appeals for help from the colonized were passed on to the ECOSOC committee and ignored. Fearing a racist backlash at home, Eleanor Roosevelt warned W.D. Du Bois that appeals for black equality would ruin the work of the conference. France and Australia asked that language about minority and tribal rights be toned down. American conservatives were appalled at the endorsement of the welfare state and social justice and regarded it as a crypto-communist document. The U.S. Treasury Department officials declared that the rights to full employment and equal pay were unfeasible. The Union and its satellites ultimately abstained from endorsing the declaration as they believed it did not fully endorse economic and social rights and denounce fascism. Saudi Arabia was unhappy about the Freedom of Religion Clause. South Africa, who was instituting apartheid at the time, disagreed with most of the document. Nevertheless, because the document was from the General Assembly and not the Security Council, it was non-binding. In the end, it was just a declaration. Nations could implement as much or as little of the document as they wanted. The Declaration of Human Rights was not a part of the UN Charter, which was required to join the organization. How much the Declaration of Human Rights made the lives of ordinary people better is debatable. Realists saw the document as best a a fancy trappings for the UN and at worst a hypocritical failure of a document. Even for governments that endorsed the document, there was no formal mechanism by which to measure a government's compliance or hold it accountable. Nevertheless, a large number of groups and individuals, bar associations, parliaments, human rights activists, trade unions, women's movements, uh, writers, scientists, and other intellectuals regarded it as another step on the long road of human rights that had begun with the Magna Carta. Many nations did not take the document seriously as well and set up offices to handle human rights cases. The General Assembly also established the Commission on Human Rights, which reported to ECOSOC and the General Assembly. Like all General Assembly commissions, it could report and advise, but not command. Nevertheless, the commission has passed many resolutions and created various new bodies in the arena of human rights. I want to take a quick break here and thank our Patreon sponsors for supporting the show. Like the United Nations, we are dependent on donor funds, and unfortunately, I have not yet heard from the Rockefeller Foundation in regards to their funding. If you enjoy episodes like this or our episodes on the Marshall Plan and NATO, which explore institutions during the Cold War and their relevancy to the present day, please consider becoming a contributing supporter at the $5 level or to the podcast via Patreon or whatever amount you feel is appropriate on the website at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. If you're not in a financial position to support us at the moment or are already a supporter of the show but would like to help more, Make sure to give us a positive review on iTunes or the platform of your choice and or share this episode or one that you really enjoyed on social media. And don't forget to tell your friends and family about us. If you find these commercial breaks tedious and intrusive by becoming a continuing supporter, you can get our commercial free episodes via Patreon. Now back to the show.
As we have seen, the charter and structure of the United Nations was very much shaped by the diplomatic events of the 1930s, mainly aggression in dealing with the economic effects of the Great Depression. But the world of the late 1940s and early 1950s was very different from that of the 1930s. Beyond the North Korean invasion of South Korea in 1950, very few of the crises uh, involved uh, naked aggression, and even the Korean War was in some ways a civil war. As we have seen, the vast majority of the wars during this period were civil wars like in Palestine or wars of national liberation like in Indonesia or Indochina or wars that occurred as a result of decolonization like in Kashmir between India and Pakistan. The UN was often at a loss as how to deal with these conflicts. For one, it had not been structured to solve such issues. It had been designed to respect the sovereignty of its member states. This has become one of the perennial issues at the UN. The rights of people and the high ambitions of the UN Charter clashing with the sovereign rights of states. Intervention of the UN in domestic matters of any state was not authorized, nor were member states required to submit to such a jurisdiction. The United Nations had also been designed to function in a multipolar world with centers of power chiefly in Europe. Nevertheless, with France only a shadow of its former self and Great Britain in a slow but steady decline, and the rise of the Cold War, the world quickly developed into a bipolar system with nations clustering around the United States and the Soviet Union. Looking forward to our contemporary period, it will be interesting to see if the UN becomes more relevant in international diplomacy over the course of the 21st century as the world returns to a multipolar world with the rise of China and India, the resurgence of Russia, and the potential rise of the European Union, and the continued presence of the U.S. as a great power. Nonetheless, in the early part of the Cold War, the UN, because of the bipolar nature of the world, was often left divided on issues. The Soviet Union used its veto on many occasions to protect communist states or their adherents from the UN Security Council. It blocked the admission of states to the UN it felt were fascist, colonial lackeys, or Catholic strongholds like Austria, Ceylon, Finland, Ireland, Italy, Portugal, and Jordan. The United States, in contrast, didn't use its first veto until 1970. This may seem amazing given the U.S.'s current relationship with the U.N., but it should be remembered that the makeup of the U.N. in the late 1960s and 70s started to change drastically as more African and Asian states became members, nations unlike the Europeans and Latin Americans who saw the world very differently from the Americans. In 1945, there were only 50 states in the U.N., the rest were occupied former Axis powers like Germany and Japan, suspect pro-Axis neutrals like Spain, Ireland, and Argentina, honest neutrals such as Switzerland and countries in civil war like Greece. Most of the rest of the world lived under European imperial rule. The Charter had included language about preparing the non-self-governing territories of the world for future independence, but very little was done in this respect and very little was allocated for political and economic development in the developing world. As we have seen, the first five years of the United Nations saw a number of crises, the colonial struggles in Indonesia, the first war between India and Pakistan, the Chinese Civil War, the, the first Arab-Israeli War, the Berlin Crisis of 1948, and the outbreak of the Korean War, all of which we have covered in previous episodes, minus the Korean War and Chinese Civil War, which we will tackle in future episodes. Out of these crises and wars, the UN found itself trying to find peaceful solutions to intractable conflicts. One of the aspects to grow out of this, which wasn't anticipated in 1945, was the role of peacekeepers and UN observers. 
The familiar sight on our television of U.N. troops with their blue helmets and white vehicles with the big letters U.N. emblazed across them. The U.N. Charter makes no reference to peacekeepers and offers no guidelines on collective action. The U.N. dispatched observers to the Greek border during their civil war. U.N. observers were monitoring the withdrawal of Dutch forces from Indonesia. Observers were sent to monitor the Arab-Israeli truce in 1948. A fact-finding mission was sent to Kashmir during the first Indo-Pakistan War in 1949. Such actions created an international precedent, along with the establishment of a special mediator such as Count Folk Bernadetti in the first Arab-Israeli War. Nevertheless, these missions and forces were limited. The UN observers were typically unarmed or lightly armed. They were not to use force unless in self-defense. Occasionally, they were attacked on purpose or by accident and took casualties. If fighting did resume between two countries in a dispute, they had to stand aside and, and not try and prevent it or stop it. Moreover, they could not prevent attacks on civilians such as in Palestine. No matter how bad the atrocities or violations of international law, they were often as well accused of favoring one side or the other in conflicts. Very often, UN forces were reliant upon host governments for transport, supplies, and accommodations, putting them in a position of dependency and making it hard for them to appear to be a neutral arbiter. I want to thank you for listening to Episode 37, The United Nations in the Early Cold War. Make sure you tune in for our next episode as we examine the establishment of the World Bank and IMF in the early Cold War. If you have any questions, show ideas, want to share sources for the show, follow us on social media, check out the photos for this and other episodes, make sure to check out our website at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. As always, if you'd like to financially contribute to the show, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter at the $5 level. As always, well there, don't forget to fill out our survey so that you can help us to bring you a better show. At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details.